This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, we're going to hear from Garrett and Mitchell, and we've got a little bit of a practice management discussion here. Garrett is going to talk extensively about buying a block of mutual funds business, which is a topic that I certainly hear a lot of questions about. It's uh, by no means something that I would consider myself expert in. I've never done it before and likely never will do it. And then we're going to hear from Mitchell, and Mitchell talks about younger advisor having retirement planning discussions with clients who are closer to or in retirement. So a couple of practice management related topics here. We don't get overly technical on this call. And for that reason, I just want to go over our continuing ed credits. This will be a practice management session as far as FP Canada is concerned. It won't fit into the financial planning category, but rather the practice management category. And it will be good in all jurisdictions except for British Columbia. So if you're in British Columbia and giving it a listen, fine, go ahead, give it a listen. In fact, one of the advisors on the call is in British Columbia, as you'll hear, so you might find it interesting from a geographic perspective. But the Insurance Council of BC rules generally don't allow practice management as a topic for continuing ed purposes. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. In our first interview, we're going to hear from Garrett. Garrett is a young fellow and recently acquired a block of business. And actually, I'm thinking now of doing a follow-up call. It's actually been quite some time since I recorded this interview. And I think it's probably time for a follow-up call with Garrett. I think it'd be interesting to see how this acquisition has gone. I do find mixed bag of results with acquisitions, although it sounds like Garrett was pretty careful in doing this acquisition. I have a couple of comments here. You'll hear Garrett in this interview talk about client name versus nominee name. Those who are at IROC firms are probably very familiar with this distinction. Those who are at larger MFDA firms may not be familiar with this distinction. You've probably never been given the choice if you're at a larger MFDA firm. And on the insurance side, it's not a distinction you're likely familiar with at all. We'll post a link to an article. It's a little bit dated, but an article that describes some of the benefits of using nominee name accounts. Not that I think everybody should be using nominee name accounts necessarily, but it helps to sort of see a pros and cons. Anyways, in a nominee name account, the dealer is actually the registered owner of the account. And this allows a couple of things. 
It allows the transactions to take place where the dealer essentially does them all in bulk. This has some benefits. It makes it a little bit easier typically for the actual advisor to manage the account, although it does put some burden on the advisor sometimes to make sure they're managing the client's cash positions properly, especially where there's RIF holdings. Sometimes we find dealers, although this is less common than it once was, sometimes we find dealers who might restrict access to F-series funds only in nominee name accounts. And it does sometimes incur additional costs for the client, which sometimes can penalize a lower value client, somebody with a smaller amount of invested assets, because there's typically a trustee service fee that has to be paid here. In a client name account, the client is the registered owner of the securities. And this means that as the dealer, every transaction has to be processed as one separate transaction. You can't sort of batch your transactions in a client name account. So it's something that Garrett touches on in there. And I just mentioned it so that we have a little bit of an understanding of the distinction between these two things. You'll also hear Garrett talk quite a bit about the terms of acquiring a business. And you've heard me reference this podcast before, but I do want to take this opportunity for those that find this whole practice of buying and selling businesses interesting. If you have clients who are buying and selling practices, I'm going to give a nod to one of my favorite podcasts. That's John Warrillow's Built to Sell Radio. Every time I've recommended it to somebody who does a lot of work with business owner clients, they say, yeah, that was a really good referral. So again, pop over to Built to Sell Radio. It's such a well-done podcast, and people really get into a lot of details about how they bought and sold businesses. And actually, John must have been at an event in Alberta recently because two of his recent interviews, two of his summer of 2019 interviews, are with Alberta-based entrepreneurs. Let's hear from Garrett then about the acquisition of this block of mutual funds business. Thanks very much for joining us today, Garrett. Garrett is a financial planner based in Northern British Columbia, carries his uh, mutual fund license, although and I think you're going to talk about this, formerly IROC licensed and also an insurance license. Thank you very much, Garrett. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. And what we were chatting a little bit before the show about was around your fairly recent acquisition of a sizable mutual funds practice. Yeah, that's right. So uh, in January of this year, we uh, we merged with a firm. Um, it's been, yeah, an interesting experience to say the least. Uh, lots of twists and turns, and I don't think anybody can really prepare you for what's involved in moving from one dealer to another and getting into more of a management role. Let's look at a little bit about some of the things you did before you came into this practice. So obviously with a big block like that, you would have done a fair bit of due diligence. Can you talk a little bit about the due diligence steps you took before you made the decision to acquire? Yeah, absolutely. So um, before I was uh, in this role, I was just in an advisor role with it with a same firm, but then we obviously decided to take on this acquisition. So before we looked at this practice, we actually we actually learned that it was for sale from a, a mutual fund uh, wholesaler. And I think their sort of role beyond obviously being the wholesaler for, for the firm that they work in is uh, connecting advisors, right? Because they have those discussions on a daily basis. And so um, being able to understand, you know, who's looking to buy, who's looking to sell, 
they're really good at connecting people in, uh, in the industry, in my opinion. So we actually got the tip from a wholesaler and we looked at the practice. And at the time, there was actually about five suitors who were looking to acquire the company. So we were actually late to the party, um, ended up coming in sort of last. And they had had an evaluation done by somebody out of, I think it was Manitoba. So they actually had, had you know, were very serious about selling and they had a very solid valuation done. So there wasn't really much negotiation on the price. Everybody who was wanting to buy was willing to pay that price and they were willing to sell for that price. So um, there was no real negotiation done there. It was just more with regards to the structure of how the financing was going to take place. So after we had met these advisors who, who own the practice, uh, we, you know, kind of went through the, the book and saw, you know, what percentage of it was in, in DSC and low load and, and front end, because that makes a big difference with regards to cash flow. And then, you know, we, we obviously said we were very interested. We created some financing terms. So the way that we did it, we structured a large cash portion up front. Uh, we got financing through um, our dealer as well as the bank for that. And then we agreed to two other smaller cash payments at the end of year one and at the end of year two. So there was a bit of a vendor take back there. We, we decided to do that because um, you know, it kept them around and it made sure that the transition went smoothly and hopefully with the least amount of attrition possible. And sort of from that point, we created our terms and, and uh, structured the deal. And we ended up obviously becoming the, the successful suitor for this company in this, uh, in this acquisition. So yeah, it worked out really well. You know, we, there was a lot of prep work involved in um, creating the necessary paperwork and getting in touch with the clients to actually, you know, move the practice from one dealer to another. But uh, we, we managed to move about $110 million in assets in um, just shy of three months. So uh, and it was about a thousand clients. So yeah, it was uh, it was really well done. Obviously, had a great team behind me doing it. And yeah, we were we were very successful. It's a lot of work to move those clients over. Never mind structuring the deal and so forth. Can I ask which bank you used to help finance the deal? Uh, so yeah, originally we had it structured through our dealer through Scotia, and then we actually did a refinance uh, within about three or four months. Um, we just had got some better terms through uh, through a different bank. We were able to actually move the debt from the from the off code to our hold codes. So it was actually an interesting structure. So the debt is held by our individual the individual partners hold codes as opposed to the actual off code itself. Personal guarantees were required, obviously, but it uh, it just restructured the financing and the terms were a lot better for us. So. Did you find that the banker at the second bank was easier to deal with as well? Was that something that entered into the consideration or was it just on terms? He actually worked in, in the finance industry. Um, I'm, I'm not confident if he was a financial advisor, but he understood our, our industry a little bit better. He understood how, uh, how we get compensated, right? And I think it's, it's kind of difficult for banks to look at a, at a deal like this where there are no hard assets and you're really just lending based on cash flow and to be able to say well yeah we'll lend based on that cash flow you know it's it's really hard to for, i think for for a, a lender to to do that right because you never know what's what's going to happen and it's while the the cash flow with this firm has been very predictable and very steady and growing over over the years um, i think a lot of banks won't necessarily look at that right 
I'm going to circle back to a term you used before, and I'm just going to take a second to define here. You talked about a vendor take back, and you said for the first two years. So just for the sake of our listeners, then a vendor take back means that the person who sold the business would still have an opportunity to somehow reacquire control of the business if some conditions around the sale are not met. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it wasn't necessarily with regards to them taking back control. We did it more so for, I guess you'd say mutual protection, but uh, we, we couldn't come up with necessarily all of the financing in one go. Uh, so it was necessary to hold back a portion of the actual purchase price. And like you say, it kind of keeps, you know, incumbent advisors around for, for a year or two to make sure that everything um, you know, goes smoothly, right? And how have you found it working with the incumbent advisors then? It's been a, an interesting process. Two of, of the advisors are planning on retiring quite shortly. So um, that's going to be interesting as far as, you know, trying to find advisors that are, are able to replace them. I think it's really hard to find qualified advisors. And, and, and I, I say qualified advisors as somebody who's who's had some industry experience, who has some, you know, education, I would ideally like to hire a, a CFP advisor, right? I think that's very important. Um, so it's going to be difficult for me in the next six to 12 months finding a qualified advisor or advisors to, uh, to replace them. Definitely. It's one of the challenges that I run into so very frequently. I think that there's a, a real trade-off in this industry where by the time a lot of people are ready to pursue the CFP, they want to be self-employed as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's been a challenge for me. I, I didn't know um, when I started the CFP course um, that I was going to be taking over a company like this. And so uh, it was kind of bad timing on my part, um, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop. I mean, the, the CFP is a designation I've wanted to pursue for a long time now, and it's the way that it worked out, right? So it's been a grind the last nine months, uh, but I'm not looking back and I, I hope that I have my designation, you know, by the end of the year or, you know, early 2019, um, assuming everything goes well. I hope so too. For those, uh, nobody would know this, but Garrett did just pass the level one exam. Just got results yesterday, in fact, the day before this is being recorded. So congratulations, Garrett. That's a big accomplishment right there. Yeah, thank you. Now, you still have the incumbents working in the business, the vendors working in the business. As part of your due diligence, did you make any sort of assumptions around losing any portion of the client base once the transition is complete or while the transition is underway? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Attrition is, is obviously something that's at the back of your mind and you're thinking about uh, when, you, when you look at doing a transition like this. One thing that I didn't mention was one of the incumbent advisors actually passed away in December of last year. So part of the reason why they were looking at selling the practice, obviously a, an ill advisor, um, they, they felt it was time to retire and, and, and get out of the business eventually. So um, unfortunately, kind of almost as we were handing over the check, uh, he passed away, which was very, very unfortunate. So it threw some wrenches into into the financing deal. It just just the way that you know we had to structure the buyout. His spouse actually ended up receiving the funds, right? So when you get lawyers involved in that type of thing, it, it muddies the water a little bit. So yeah, with you know with having an advisor pass away, that's that's really unfortunate and very difficult to deal with. And you think there would be maybe even more attrition as a result of that. But we've we've actually um, 
been very successful with moving the clients and they've all been very receptive to the fact that it's, it's just an unfortunate event that uh, nobody can really control. And uh, we've probably seen less than 5% attrition in moving the blog. So, Do you have a particular process in place for making sure that you do retain as much of the block as possible? Right. So I think just communication to the clients, letting them understand uh, what's going on. Um, we, we sent out multiple communication to clients via email and uh, direct mail before anything even happened. So, uh, you know, clients were, were aware of what was going on. And I think that's probably one of the biggest keys in being successful in something like this is having clients be aware of what's happening and making sure that the transition goes smoothly, right? So, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to, I think, transition a, a big book of business like this without having at least some attrition, right? And, you know, clients who maybe don't live in the, in the same vicinity, they're just going to decide to work with an advisor that's closer to them as a result of this. Or, you know, those clients that had really, really strong personal connections with the old advisor and don't want to necessarily deal with a different advisor, maybe they're going to, you know, go somewhere else as well, right? So just part of the, part of the process. Now, for you, it's a big transition as well, because you've gone from being something of an independent advisor, I guess, into being a full-on business owner with all the responsibilities associated with that. How is that transition going for you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's definitely been sort of a whirlwind the last nine months. I mean, just learning to deal with all of the um, joys that come with uh, owning a business, right? So uh, for me, yeah, I, I, I wish that school had prepared me a little bit more for this. Um, I just, just so the listeners know, I've got a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance and Marketing. And, you know, trying to draw from that to, to help run the business. I mean, there's, there's, so little that I can actually draw from that, unfortunately. They, it's really true that school really does not prepare you for the real world, unfortunately. And if I, if I could go back, I almost wish that I had have taken that extra accounting course in university and, and maybe some more business admin um, courses or, you know, if, if that was even available, I'm, I'm not even sure. But yeah, it's, it's really, uh, really difficult to, to sort of, I think, prepare yourself for, for something like this. And um, you really just have to kind of leave a little bit of it to, to, to chance and, and learning on the fly, right? So $110 million block, what's the staff like? What's the team like? How many folks do you have working there? Yeah, so we've got uh, currently there's four advisors and four back office staff or assistants. And uh, everybody's great. I mean, that's one of the things that we that we obviously did in our due diligence was meet everybody and, and understand, you know, what the team was looking for. And I can't stress enough how much of, uh, of a team we really are, right? We, we all work together. Um, everybody works really well collaboratively. And, and I think that's sort of the, the, the focus and the vision that we're trying to, to sort of emulate with, with regards to our team. I mean, you can't, in my opinion, be sort of just an independent advisor working in a, in a silo when you, when you can work, you know, as a team of advisors or with other colleagues. Um, it, it just allows you to, in my opinion, provide a better uh, holistic experience for the client, right? So, so yeah, so we, when we have specific cases that we're working on, we'll have one or two advisors take a look at them and, and sort of shoot different ideas back and forth. And I think it, it allows us to generate some really unique ideas and, and help, uh, help the client in, in different ways. 
Now, you mentioned before that you were one of, I can't remember now, sorry, four or five bids that were in place for this practice. That's right. Do you have a sense of what caused your bid to rise to the top? You said all the, the prices were roughly the same. Yeah, I think it was just because, you know, we were we were more local, right? These, these other bids were coming from larger centers. Um, they didn't really have a strategy for how they were going to come in and, and hire advisors. They, they kind of just felt that they could hire advisors and, and fly them up uh, to, you know, Northern British Columbia, uh, where, you know, a lot of people don't maybe necessarily even know where we are and, and be successful, right? So the fact that I was from Northern BC and, you know, born and raised uh, in the area, it, uh, it, was, it was kind of the kicker, actually, so. It's good. It's a different world for those that have not been up that way. And it's not like rural Saskatchewan or it's not like rural Manitoba. It is its own world in Northern British Columbia for sure. Yeah. Now you uh, mentioned earlier that you previously worked at a firm where you had IROC licensing and this block now is all MFDA, but you talked about potentially making the transition back to the IROC side. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. So when I originally got licensed, um, I actually wrote my CSC uh, during the third summer of my uh, university career. So I was licensed before I was even finished my my Bachelor of Commerce degree. Um, I, I went through the CSC because I wanted to be IROC licensed stocks or sort of kind of got me fascinated with, with the industry. And so because this this block of business was an MFDA block, what had to happen was I had to move my registration from IROC to MFDA. Uh, because I was IROC licensed, that move uh, it can be done without any uh, any additional education. So I don't want to say that IROC is higher up than, than MFDA because I, I know that a lot of <laughs> MFDA advisors don't like that. But because the IROC licensing has the the, the mutual fund and the, the securities component as well, you're, you're able to move without issue. Now, the kicker is obviously that I have to move back to the IROC side within two years. Otherwise, I have to rewrite my, my Canadian securities course. So um, I will move back because I do want to I do want to be able to offer the stock side of things to clients as well. And, and like I say, that's that's what I'm really, really interested in. So how difficult are you anticipating it'll be to transition the MFDA block back to the IROC side? Right. Yeah. So lots of paperwork, of course. Right. Um, the other thing about this block is it's uh, it's a client name block. So there's no nominee name accounts. I'd like to go back to the nominee side of things, which is where kind of the world I was living in before. Right. So um, that transition is just, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, a lot of work, lots of paperwork but uh, we're prepared to do it because we think it's going to be, it's going to be what our clients want. Out of your client base, then how many of them do you figure will want to use say individual securities or exchange traded funds or whatever other products you can't access right now on an MFDA platform? Right. Yeah. So I think it's, you're closing doors by not offering that to clients. Right. And, and so a, a portion of the practice, it's really hard to say, I'd say, probably 20 to 30% have stock portfolios outside of their uh, mutual fund portfolios, or they're looking at um, 
you know, acquiring different stocks. Um, I, you know, what's trendy right now is, is marijuana stocks, right? So you, you always have clients coming in and saying, Hey, I want to get a piece of this action. And, and uh, unfortunately I can't offer that to them right now. And, and generally what I'll kind of do is shy them away from that idea. Cause I really don't like <laughs> what's happening right now with those, with those stocks necessarily. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's just something that clients want uh, or will want down the road. And it's, it's good to be able to offer that to clients, right? So that's, yeah, that's why I think it's important to move back to, to that world. Something you had mentioned before we started the call as well was the challenges facing a young advisor today, specifically around the lack of DSC structures or really just the obligation to do everything on, let's say, F-series. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe some advice you would have for a young advisor coming into the business today? Yeah. So, I mean, I got very lucky when, when getting into this business, I, I actually had a full-time job before I was even finished university. I was interning for the firm while I was going to school. Uh, the way that it worked out was my dad was actually a client of the firm. Uh, he was sitting down with his advisor mentioning that I was going to university, getting a finance degree. The advisor was looking to bring on a junior associate and it just worked out from there. So, so I was very fortunate to get into a role where I didn't have to sort of start from the very bottom and, and DSC necessarily uh, to, to sort of make my money, right? I was, I was on uh, a, a salary to start and so uh, salary plus commission and, and so it worked out well for me. But for a young advisor, I mean, yeah, I think it's almost nearly impossible to start out just from scratch. You have to sort of acquire a book of business or get on with a firm that's willing to sort of pay for you for the first couple of years until you can get established. In my opinion, I, I think it takes probably three to four years to actually get established in the industry and be in a position where you're comfortable uh, talking to clients and, and advising, right? So it, it, it takes a little while to actually get to that point. And like we were talking about earlier, I think it's very, very difficult for you know, you know younger or even just newer advisors to get into the industry and be successful. Do you think that the senior advisor that you initially came in working with was that person counting on you as their succession plan? Was that something that was in the cards at, at some point? Yeah, it absolutely uh, is and, and, and was at, at the time. So uh, this advisor is actually relatively young, um, but he, he was looking for a succession plan, absolutely. And so um, I was part of that succession plan. And, and, you know, it may take the next 10 to 15 years for that to actually come to fruition, but that was definitely part of the plan. So that's not off the table now. That's still something that could potentially happen. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm about five years in the industry right now. And yeah, I'm, I would imagine he would be looking at, at exiting maybe in the next 10 to 15 years. Okay. Now the folks that are working for you, you said there's four advisors working in the shop you're in now. How many of them have an ownership stake then? So uh, there's two other advisors um, who have an ownership stake. So there's three of us that, uh, that own the firm. And then are you concerned that, because it is a challenge finding, you know, as you said before, good qualified folks, are you concerned that the two who are not in an ownership position might be tempted by a deal like the one you encountered here and you lose those at some point to the lure of entrepreneurship, let's say? Well, I mean, I think that's always, uh, yeah, something to think about, but these, these other advisors are, um, you know, getting up there in age. And so they're probably looking at maybe getting, getting out of the business, you know, relatively soon as opposed to, yeah, looking to acquire, uh, 
you know, a new business. If I'm bringing on a, a new young advisor, I would want to look at giving them an, an ownership stake within the first year or two, um, just to, to, to give them that sense of ownership and, and to keep them around, of course, right? I think that that's something a lot of people are not willing to do. Can you talk a little bit more about your thought process about that early introduction of an ownership stake? Yeah, so I think it's it's important uh, when you when you own a company that you bring on people that are willing to not only work for you but work with you, right? And especially in this type of team atmosphere that that we're striving for, um, I want the the advisors that I work with to be owners because. Uh, if we're all owners, we're all, you know, pulling on the same oar and we're, we're working together, right? When you have that sense of ownership, I think there's more accountability. Uh, there's more strive to be successful. When you're just an employee, maybe there's not that drive, right, that, uh, that I would want out of somebody that I'm working with. Now, this is going to present the same challenge. You're going to have to go and find some, let's say, young talent at some point. You're in a reasonably remote area. Have you given any thought to how you build up a recruiting network or how you uh, create the proper connections. Not everybody is going to have a son who happens to be graduating from finance at exactly the right moment. Is there any thought to how you'll cultivate that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I was saying before, I think that's going to be one of my biggest struggles going forward in the next six to 12 months is finding that talent to, to bring on, right? So yeah, it's it's challenging for sure. I, I think it's really difficult to um, just put an ad out there on Indeed and find good quality, right? So, um, and especially good quality that's maybe necessarily willing to move here because uh, I may not find it local. So, yeah, definitely a, a huge challenge and something that is at the back of my mind a lot. So um, the first the first place, obviously, that I'll look is locally and, and see if I can find a young advisor that's willing to maybe move from one of the banks or some other institution. Um, but beyond that, I think I will have to advertise um, and not only locally, but, but regionally and, and maybe nationally to find uh, to find, the, you know, the right fit for, for who I'm looking for. So it'll be a lot of a lot of work and and a lot of due diligence on my part, but uh, hopefully hopefully it works out. Now you talked earlier about succession with the former person you were working with. If another block came up for sale today, would you look at acquiring? Is that part of the growth strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So our growth strategy is is definitely to uh, grow by acquisition. I think it's really the only way to grow in the industry right now. So. I'm hoping that that there are some advisors out there that are looking at at selling their their blocks of business and that uh, that we can acquire uh, going forward. Obviously, it's a little bit more difficult in a smaller center. There's not a lot of options out there, but I think that there are a lot of of you know books of business and and aging advisors that are looking to perhaps get out of the industry, especially with all of the new restrictive regulatory requirements. That is a common source of motivation that I hear for people to make the exit decision. For your practice, then, you're relatively new to the business. What are you seeing on the regulatory front that presents a challenge for you or that might be a concern as you try to grow your business? Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of one of the things that I like about the industry is it's very dynamic, always changing. Obviously, the regulatory stuff gets challenging. Um, you know, our dealer is very good about keeping abreast of, of all of the changes and helping us in any way that they can to, to deal with all the regulatory things that are coming down the pipeline. But, um, I mean, what we're doing is we're just, we're just sort of looking at, at, at the new changes and we're embracing them uh, because we have to, right? There's no way that we can't. 
so just, you know, as an example, I, I guess the biggest thing that I'm dealing with right now is this new, um, this new letter that has to be uh, presented to the client when you make a, a life insurance sale. And uh, I've looked at a few different, you know, examples, and I think it's, you know, it's quite a bit. It's, it, it's really being diligent, and I think that is important. But, um, you know, how do we integrate that into our sales practice? It's uh, it's going to be a challenge, I think, uh, maybe for some advisors who aren't used to necessarily doing that. So, yeah, I mean, all of these things, they present a, a unique challenge, but uh, we're, we're really just leveraging technology and, um, and using it to assist us in our, in our day-to-day business to tackle these, these challenges, right? Any uh, technology tools you want to give a particular shout-out to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we use Salesforce uh, as, our, as our CRM software. We're also using uh, an integration app, which is called Box. And so that's just like a Dropbox or uh, a digital file server. Um, it's great. It, we, we essentially have an electronic file for every single client. And we have all of most of their documents in that file. It's going to take a while to actually get the physical files scanned and into those uh, electronic files, but that's somewhere that I would like to be, you know, in the next year, say. So yeah, getting everything sort of online and uh, and on our CRM system. So you know, if a client calls or or I'm out um, at a client's house. Uh, I can just pull up all of their information on my iPad or uh, or just on the computer, right? And it makes things a lot easier, and, you know, as far as doing business. Perfect. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Any other thoughts you have around acquiring a practice, due diligence, any of the changes that come about after you acquire a practice? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing for me is, uh, you know, like I was saying before to you, you can't you're never going to expect, you know, what the challenges are going to be unless you've, you've, you've lived it, right? So um, I'd like to say that I can kind of write the book on doing an acquisition and, and, and moving from one dealer to another and, and doing the, a transition. Um, but it's it's so hard to know what to expect uh, until you're actually living it, right? So um, if, if there is a young advisor or, or an advisor who's looking at acquiring a practice, I would say maybe reach out to somebody who's done it before and, and figure out the best the best process, right? Because there there are things that you can do to make the actual transition more efficient. And I would say it's important to consult somebody before you get involved because there's a lot of ways that it can go wrong. Did you have a mentor or a coach or some relationship like that that was helpful for you in making the transition? Yeah, so the advisors that I was working with before had um, acquired the company that, uh, that they're with. And so um, they had some experience in dealing with it. Um, these advisors actually who we acquired or, or their, their firm which we acquired uh, had gone through a couple different dealer changes in the past. So they actually had some insights as well to help out with the process. So I was very lucky that I had, yeah, a lot of good mentors and, and, and team members to sort of help guide me through the process. Um, I would say if I didn't have that, it would be, yeah, it would be very challenging. That's really great, Garrett. Thanks for sharing so much. There's a lot of meat in what you shared. You touched on a, a wide variety of points. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today and good luck as you finish out this acquisition and uh, hopefully are able to find some folks to add to your team. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. A couple more things that I want to follow up on from Garrett's discussion there. 
he mentions the practice of buying out these advisors while they're still working in the business. And I find this is always an interesting discussion. I certainly talked to a lot of people in this business whose plan is sort of to die in the chair where they say, you know, I'm friends with my clients. I don't really have to work that hard. I go and I have coffee with my clients or meet them for meals or go golfing with them or other social activities. And really, if I retire, I'm going to lose all those relationships. And then some people, and I'm seeing more of this lately, and some of this comes down to, I think, increased compliance, but I see more people who actually have put in place a structured retirement plan. And some of that is pressure from the firms that they deal with as well. I think it's something to consider. What is your retirement plan? Are you going to die in the chair or are you one day going to actually retire and hang it up and pass it on to somebody else? And I would suggest that one of the things to consider when you talk about dying in the chair, is this something you would also recommend for your clients? And I think that if you're having this retirement discussion all the time with your clients, but your plan is to die in the chair, there can be a little bit of a disconnect there. And I'm not suggesting that is necessarily a bad thing, but I think you want to address that disconnect. That being said, if you have that conversation with clients and they say, yeah, my plan is to die in the chair, you know, you might find that that's a better connection with your clients. So something to ponder anyways. And then of course, is your health going to hold up long enough to do that? And what happens when grandkids and great grandkids come along and you want to enjoy maybe some of that time as well. The other thing Garrett mentions in here, and it's something we have talked about in one previous episode as well, is the reasons why letter. And I'm a big fan of this introduction. I hope it's getting used regularly. I certainly have run into cases already where uh, reasons why was poorly done. And we saw insurance regulators step in and take action on that basis. Basically, the reasons why letter has to accompany, and it's not new anymore, now we're two years into this regime, but a reasons why letter has to accompany every sale of an insurance product up to and including segregated funds. The reasons why letter doesn't have to be overly complicated, and if you're not using one right now, I would suggest you reach out to your MGA and get some help with how your reasons why letter could look. The idea is that the client is supposed to be given an understanding of what they bought and why they bought it, and really something that they could refer back to later on to say, why am I spending this uh, $300 a month in insurance premiums or whatever it happens to be? You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online that's bcc as in business career college bccquiz.online and there's a little quiz you'll do there just a few questions and if you're already a subscriber then it will issue you a certificate if you're not already a subscriber then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way In our second interview, we're going to hear from Mitchell. Mitchell is quite young. You'll hear him refer to that in the interview a little bit. 
and he does do some retirement planning work with some of his clients. Interestingly, Mitchell, unlike a lot of young advisors, I find, does get into annuities discussions with his clients, and he's licensed to sell mutual funds. He's not on the security side, but he's on the mutual fund side, so he has access to a fair bit of stuff on the investment side, but he also says, look, if we have the annuity discussion, we can get into this whole fixed income, ensure your lifestyle, ensure your longevity discussion. I'm a big fan of that. You hear Mitchell talk about referring back to my classes where we talk about annuities. And I really would urge you to have a look at annuities for clients. I don't like it for sort of early retirement, but I sure do like them in the early 70s and on. I think it's a way to take a significant amount of risk out of your retirement planning and really give the client a strong degree of certainty that they're going to be able to do what they want to do from a risk perspective for the advisor as well. The advantage here is that you take some of the investment risk off the table, you take sequence of returns risk off the table, for example, if the client ends up with their investment portfolio dipping by 20 or 30 percent in that first two or three years of retirement, you have such a problem and this use of annuities can help to insulate that. And we'll get into this more. I want to do this in a future podcast to come back and revisit annuities. I've got a couple of folks lined up to talk about this. So I look forward to dipping into that a little bit more. Let's hear from Mitchell then and have this discussion about how a younger advisor can have retirement discussions with their clients. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, Mitchell. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Mitchell is a financial advisor based in Kingsville, Ontario. Mitchell has recently completed, congratulations, his level one certification with the Financial Planning Standards Council and on your way, hopefully, to the certified financial planner as well. And also you are licensed for life insurance and accident and sickness and property and casualty insurance, as well as investment funds. I have that right, Mitchell? Yeah, that's all correct. Perfect. Mitchell's firm is financial planning focused. So a lot of the work you do will be financial planning work, Mitchell. That's yeah, right. That's very correct. Yeah. So Mitchell is a uh, fairly young advisor. I think you said in your early 20s. Yes. I'm always interested, Mitchell, to hear about younger advisors having retirement planning conversations. One of the traditional knocks you hear or concerns you hear is young advisors who are unable to get older clients to respond to them when it comes time to talk about retirement income or retirement planning. And I know you've had some clients recently that were older than yourself and where you might have encountered that problem. Can you talk a little bit about that, Mitchell? Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. So the, the beauty of my in particular, um, is a lot of clients I find end up coming into my office looking for home and auto insurance or uh, potentially looking for life insurance or, or disability or, or what have you. Um, and most people, when they sit down with me, they don't realize that I'm going to be talking investments. And, and I find, especially with older clients, um, you know, in, in the ranges of, you know, kind of that 40 plus range, and especially clients who are already retired and looking at income strategies, um, the second I kind of start speaking to my, uh, my investment knowledge, I get the nose turned up at me 
a little bit in the furrowed eyebrows because I don't necessarily have the resume or uh, you know the track record that a lot of clients end up asking for. So I, I find the biggest kind of hurdle on that side of things is is trying to prove in that meeting that. I'm going to care more about their finances than anybody who doesn't have their last name. And I think that's, that's a huge hurdle because a lot of these, you know, older advisors who have been in the game for a long time, um, they do have that kind of track record in that resume that they can kind of just throw it on the table. And there becomes kind of this like blind professional trust um, and not, not to bash older advisors. Obviously there's a lot of people who are, who are doing well by their clients. But um, one, one particular example is, is I had some clients in my office um, and this must have only been a few days ago at this point, maybe a week or so ago, and, and we're still working through the paperwork. But it had kind of been the typical approach where, you know, they had come in to chat about their home and auto insurance moving into town. Um, and, I, and I flipped the conversation to ask, well, with moving into a new town, have you, you know, met, found a new advisor to deal with kind of your retirement strategies? Um, and, and they were very resistant at first to, uh, to kind of conversate with me. Um, but as I, as I kind of, you know, kind of broke down the barriers and I, I, I found that um, what, I, what I typically would have to do in that kind of situation is it's a little sad to an extent, but you know, you have to flat flex your muscles a little bit um, and, you know, fire out a little bit of uh, knowledge and jargon that's, you know, quickly explained afterwards, but at least to show that I know what I'm talking about with, you know, quick confidence um, because I, I need to you know prove that, you know, I know what I'm talking about first of all, but also that I care. So I found with these particular clients, the, the biggest concern they had had is it seemed that the conversation with their particular advisor kept coming down again uh, to, to the rates that they were receiving on their, uh, their small portfolio. They were uh, in retirement, um, living primarily off of government benefits with no, uh, no workplace pension, um, with very small amounts in the realms of registered investments for their income and were already riffing their income. Um, and based off of kind of the projections that their advisor had been giving them with higher, you know, rate assumptions, the plan seemed sound. Um, but I had convinced them to kind of give me, give me an opportunity to at least give them a second opinion. And they were hesitant at first, but after, you know, some conversation and uh, I guess a little bit of uh, a boyish charm, if you would, um, I, I convinced them to let me give them a second opinion and found that based off of a more realistic projection, they were actually going to be out of, you know, personal assets other than their house that they could potentially loan against um, by the age of 83. Um, and, and these particular clients, both of their parents were still alive and they were in their early 60s and their parents were in their late 90s. So there was clearly no hereditary issues. They had had no health concerns. They had retired healthy, no, no medical concerns whatsoever and a clear longevity risk in their house where, you know, running out of money at 83 would be uh, financially and uh, emotionally devastating for them. And it most likely would be, uh, I mean, it was pretty much a secure and earlier death on a financial stress side of things. Um, so, a lot of their concerns seem to be along longevity and security of their assets, but I, I found that their investment strategy perhaps was not the most sound. Um, and we ended up actually taking um, a permanent life straight annuity approach with these clients um, and found that if they were able to just cut a tiny bit of their spending right now in the earlier years of their retirement, um, with an indexed annuity, they were actually going to be sound to have money coming into their account well beyond what they needed on their for their lifestyle uh, expectations well into their late 90s and uh, even into their you know hundreds if they were so fortunate or I guess unfortunate depending on who you're asked to make it that far um, so I, I think again yeah the biggest hurdle 
especially with older clients is um, finding the way to not boast my company's returns um, and not, you know, boast to be more than what I am, but just to show that, you know, even at a young age, my, uh, my primary uh, dedication is to my own education and to my clients um, so that I would always be, you know, taking the extra time to do exactly what, uh, what they would require for their best interest and not just what would line my pocket. Um, so we were able to, uh, to land the account, which was fantastic for the firm, obviously, but I, uh, I think it'll be a little bit more fantastic for these clients in the long term as well, because um, I, I find with this, uh, this annuity plan now in place, um, they're going to be uh, far more likely to uh, not run out of their money, which is really uh, their biggest concern. You know I'm a big fan of annuities, especially where there's a predisposition to longevity. You talked about flexing your sort of, let's say, financial planning muscles a little bit without maybe going into too much specifics, but can you paraphrase a little bit of uh, what that looked like? I'm sure there'll be some folks out there that are curious to know since it obviously was successful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and funny you mentioned that with the annuities. I can always hear your voice in the back of my head going, I, I feel like annuities are undersold. So it's, uh, it always reminds me to take a look at that aspect. Um, but yeah, so on the flexing of muscles, I, I find a lot of it um, is just, you know, even more under your breath. Um, I'll start to like recite back, well, you have the, uh, oh yeah, so you'll have the age credit available to you. You have the pension credit. You're splitting the CPP. You start, start to kind of, you know, think out loud about some of what, what's going on in my head. Um, I also like to uh, back reference to things like the, uh, the Financial Planning Standards Council's Assumptions Guide. So I, I find having things like that memorized is very helpful, where when they are giving me kind of their, you know, um, asset allocation of their current portfolio and telling me how it's returned, um, I'm able to just recite back, well, you know, according to the Financial Planning Standards Council, Council, uh, your mortality rate would be about this age and your, uh, you based on your asset allocation and doing some kind of quick uh, off the cuff math, kind of giving that math. Um, it's also very helpful to, uh, to know rough ideas of tax rates, um, you know, more average tax rates of what to be expected um, and be able to kind of recite those things back. Occasionally, I find if I need to uh, flex a little bit more, I'll throw more jargon into my conversation and make it a touch less understandable, which is, I, I realize, not ideal. Deal, uh, but I'll always double back on that and uh, and explain as if like I caught myself in the jargon um, and explain and educate in the process too because um, I find a lot of uh, a lot of what I end up doing in an average meeting is actually educating because even you know your sixty five year old client who's been in the uh, the markets for their their whole life or have participated in work pensions you know still don't know the difference between a stock and a bond um, or how, where MR, MER uh, fees are going and things like that when clients are complaining about fees. So more, more than anything, even if I, uh, even if I'm not actively, you know, trying to say switch to me, um, a lot of what I do is just educating on what they have as well, right? Where if they complain about, oh, I've got a 2% fee, um, just explaining, well, you're with this company, they need to play, pay compliance accountants, they need to have a trust and yada, yada, and just kind of fire through where those MERs go. So to show that I'm not necessarily looking to, uh, to diminish another company or build mine above it, because I mean, realistically, a, a company is only as good as their their plan because um, I mean every every company's got pretty well the same uh, I, I mean with differences but every company's got their their ups and downs it really comes down to the plan and, and not you know directly attacking their current plan but perhaps uh, pointing out some pitfalls um, like I know in, in another example and this might be uh, this is a touch off of the other one but another client I had come in 
um, all their, uh, their financial advisor, their accountant and their lawyer had all signed off on. And this, this is going to sound a little ridiculous that all three of them had signed off on it, but they had a cottage up North and the, uh, the husband had, um, the husband had his address and all of his vehicles listed at the cottage where the wife had hers all listed at the primary home. Um, and this cottage was re purchased recently. So this wouldn't, this wouldn't be a valid strategy anymore. Um, and their hope was to have the full lifetime capital gains exemption or uh, the principal residence exemption, mind you, um, available on both properties. Um, and, and in moments like that, it's, it's, I, I bring in more of a modesty where, you know, I can, kind of vouch that I'm 98% sure that that's incorrect, but let me speak with my accountant and my lawyer um, and end up with kind of an email that I can send over from, you know, second opinions of other professionals as well to tie into this one big second opinion. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of times, I suppose, bringing in kind of a third party who also has a resume and a, a little bit more of a track record above mine, I suppose. It's a good example, Mitchell. I like, you know, that ability to bring that technical to bear and a good bit of self-awareness too, where you say, you know, I throw in some technical language, knowing that I'm going to sort of back off on that technical language. I think you always have to be careful introducing that technical language, but having a conscious thought around why and how you're doing that is helpful there. Now, going back to your retiring clients or retired clients, mm -hmm. the, the folks that recently moved into the same town you're in, when you looked at annuity quotes here, you said life straight annuity. And I'm curious to know a little bit more about this. Is it two annuities, one each? Is it a joint annuity? Are you doing a survivor's benefit on this thing? How did you manage, let's say, longevity risk and mortality risk? Yeah, so I, I had uh, I had ran quite a few options, and what what we ended up rolling with is we ended up uh, taking out an annuity um, that was going to be split at the source, um, indexed at two percent uh, to keep in line with the uh, you know projected inflation numbers with a full survivor's benefit. Um, I, I had dabbled with the concept of uh, taking out just a seventy five percent survivor's benefit and increasing the income, but realistically, based off of their you know their current lifestyle, throwing more income into the mix than what they'd already become accustomed to, which would have been the case if we had done the 75% survivor benefit compared to the 100%. It would have been a little bit more than they were taking right now and a little bit more than they were you know, currently accustomed to. Um, I felt that the risk in that case was on more of a behavioral basis where the spending habits and that lifestyle creep would start to kind of creep up on them, where they had become accustomed with living a more kind of comfortable, comfortable, but you know, more modest retirement and bringing in much more income and then, you know, having the potentially the financial decision maker pass away could leave the other one with um, a much lower benefit and much lower knowledge of kind of um, budgeting and things of the sort. So uh, we ended up going with a 100% survivor's benefit um, fully indexed to what we expect inflation to be. Um, and it's coming specifically from each of their RIFs. Right. Makes sense. And what about liquidity risk? So did you retain some liquid assets here? What happens in case of a liquidity emergency at yeah. some point? Yeah. So they, uh, they specifically had an extra lump sum available um, that we weren't touching that was out of their, um, their house sale and purchase. They had an additional 30,000 that was sitting. So the long-term strategy, they, they weren't look necessarily looking for long-term growth or returns. Um, they were looking primarily for prevention of capital and, and liquidity, like you said, on that particular aspect to cover 
other emergencies that may come up and future potential funeral needs. But the, the only reason we didn't look at the life insurance as an option there is the liquidity, the liquidity aspect, because it would take several years to really build up a cash surrender value worth you know noting as far as that's concerned. Um, so we were opting to leave that 30000 in a cash equivalent account that would be easily accessed. So um, we're leaving it just in a high interest savings account, uh, not worrying about returns and considering that 2% inflation that would be eating away at that 30000 uh, really more of a cost of insurance for that emergency fund. That sounds like a very well thought through retirement plan, which, which I'm sure helped you to lock in that client. Do you have any uh, last minute thoughts about dealing with in retirement clients, whether it's this specific group or just in general as a younger yeah. advisor? I think the biggest thing is, you know, moving the computer aside, move everything aside and just have one piece of paper and a pen and be the person in that room who's absolutely the most interested and the most and cares the most about that client. Um, The other thing that I always make sure as well is I I never make a single recommendation or even point to what my recommendations might be Um, in a first meeting. I make it very clear that in my first meeting, my sole job is to get a better understanding of their finances than anybody in the world without their last name, like I said. So um, it's just sitting there, listening, take that home, say goodbye to the clients, cordial as possible, of course, and, uh, and really sleep on that and really care and not just turn to the quickest sale or the quickest kind of aspect. Uh, a lot of the times I like to kind of build a plan and quite literally sleep on it. Um, funny enough, I actually keep a notepad right next to my bed because I find a lot of times in the middle of the night, I, I kind of pop up for a glass of water and realize I should do something different. So um, it, it's quite literally sleeping on that plan, um, taking the time to really think it out and coming back with a solid recommendation that addresses every single one of the concerns they've they've voiced because even in the first 10 minutes of that meeting they voiced what their concerns were but by the end of you know the 60 minutes that we had sat down and really discussed their, their true concerns and objectives had become more apparent and uh, were vastly different than the first things they had said to me by the end of that meeting um, so yeah so it's, it's just you know, flex the muscles if you need to, of course, especially if you've got a baby face like me. If you don't grow a beard, that's crucial. Um, I can't do that. So I, I don't have that aspect available to me. Um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, just sit, make it very clear that you care. Um, you know, especially if they're a much older client, treat them like you're their family to you, like you would give advice to your family and, uh, and sleep on your advice before you ever open your mouth. Because a lot of the times opening your mouth in that first meeting is what's going to shoot you in the foot because they're going to go back to their advisor and say, you know, this person said this. And based on that other advisor's knowledge of the plan, it may be easily shut down. I very much vouch for never, never once making a recommendation in the first meeting and, and taking that first meeting only with a piece of paper and a pen um, to get as much information as possible. Great. That sounds like it's straight out of the capstone course, Mitchell. Let's wrap up there. Thanks very much for sharing those thoughts and lots of good, I think, usable advice for folks that might be listening. So yeah, thanks very kindly. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. I appreciate the opportunity, Jason. couple of things that Mitchell talked about in there that I would like to follow up on. First off, he a couple of times brought up the topic of kind of questioning what another advisor or another professional had done. And I think when you hear him talk about that, it doesn't seem like a confrontational discussion. I don't think he called that person's competence into account. And I don't think he did it in a way 
that he was overly challenging. I do think that there's a way to do this. Not everybody gets it right all of the time. I certainly make mistakes, and I'm sure we all acknowledge that. And sometimes you have a situation where maybe you just didn't get all the client's facts right, or you didn't understand what the client was saying, or the way the client explained something sounded too much like how another client had previously explained something and you weren't able to make the right connection with the client. So I think we have to recognize that sometimes another advisor might end up picking up on something we missed or that we might not have considered all of the facts properly. That certainly is going to happen. There's so much information that can be brought to bear here. I think it's unrealistic to expect perfection from ourselves every time. I think then you have to say, if I'm going to treat another advisor that way, if I'm going to say, you know, I can make a mistake, we recognize that sometimes another advisor can make a mistake or sometimes another advisor hasn't fully considered all the facts associated with that client they're dealing with. And I think there's a respectful and decent way to do that without trying to hold yourself out as if you're some sort of guru, all-knowing and all-seeing. So if you're going to disagree with a recommendation that another advisor or another professional has made, I think it's important to find a way to do it that doesn't malign that person that really gives the client still some confidence that most of what they saw was probably good or that they're still on the right path or that type of thing. And certainly, especially in a smaller community, if you're in the habit of routinely badmouthing your competition, it's going to come back to you. I think that even in bigger centers, that's going to be true. It just might take a little longer for that circle to come around. The other thing that Mitchell referred to here is the Financial Planning Canada Projection Assumptions Guidelines. And if you're not using these, I would strongly urge you to use them. They will be linked up in the show notes for today. There's also a really good app. You can just search FP Canada. I believe it's on all of the major app platforms. And it's got a bunch of good information in it. The two things that I like the best in here are the mortality table. There's sort of an abbreviated version of a mortality table. And if you've ever looked at the real mortality tables from the Society of Actuaries, you'll appreciate the brevity of this mortality table. It's really just a one-pager, and it says if you've got a single person or a couple, we can project roughly what that life expectancy should be for either a single person, male, female, or a couple. There's some notes on here about what to do with people who are in better health or worse health. And just as an example, if we look at a client age 70, if we're using the recommended approach from this mortality table, we would see that we should be, for a couple, assuming that at least one of them would live to age 97. And I think most 70-year-olds would be surprised to hear that. But this mortality table is grounded in some pretty good science, and it's something that we should be taking into account properly. So first off, that mortality table can be quite handy, and you can do it on the app. It's exactly the same inputs and outputs if you use the app. The other thing we see on here is we see projection numbers for investment returns. Now, this one's a little bit tougher, and I'm sure it's something that we would prefer not to do at all. In fact, there's a Michael Kitsis podcast 
right now. If you're listening to the uh, Kitsis and Richards or uh, Michael and Carl podcast, I think it's actually called, you'll hear them talk about doing projection-free financial planning, which is sort of an interesting prospect. But I know that we still like to do projections. You pull out your financial planning software. You want to give your clients something to look forward to. You want to figure out how much you have to save for retirement. So there's a table here that gives us returns for various different types of investments. And it's not to say you have to achieve these returns. It really says if you're doing a 20 or 30 year or whatever the time frame is, long, long term projection, here are some safe numbers to use. Now, the one thing I will point out is that you want to properly build these for your portfolio. These returns are all gross of fees, and then it's important to net out your fees. So if you're using, for example, a mutual fund with a 2% MER, you're told in the projection assumption guidelines to use a 6.1% return for Canadian equities, knock off a 2% MER, and you're really looking at a 4.1% return that you ought to be using in the plan. There are also assumptions in here around inflation, for example. Lots of good information in here, and they give some methodology discussion. How do they arrive at these figures? And the folks that put this together are certainly well qualified to do all of this. Again, I would encourage you to dip into these projection assumption guidelines if you've not used them before. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. I hope you found this episode useful. Please do join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll be talking with Ray about helping business owner client and taking some of the lessons learned in the financial planning curriculum and applying that for that business owner client. And we'll get back into some more pure financial planning discussion there. Thanks very much for listening. A bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out.